I'm going to pray for us before we do anything else. Gracious Father God, we thank you for the words and the works that you do and Jesus does. As we read your word now, Father, please work in our hearts that we would hear these words as words from you to us, that we might know you, that we might love you, that we might obey and worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three weeks ago, I went to visit a dying man. I was at his house. I didn't know how close he was to death at the time, but a few days after my visit, I was told that he had passed away. That was the last time that I read these verses from John's Gospel, chapter 14 because I read these verses to him as I sat beside his bed. These verses are for troubled hearts, hearts gripped by fear, hearts facing the prospect of overwhelming grief, grief of all sorts. Trouble is not just in the world when we watch the news. Trouble is not just in the lives of others. Trouble grips our own hearts as well. Uh, This man who passed away was only three years older than me. He had children a similar age to my own children. Where will I look to when trouble grips my heart and the hearts of those I love? Where will you look to when your heart is troubled? Well, in these verses before us, Jesus says to troubled hearts, trust me, trust me. In this passage, we're reminded to trust Jesus because he will take you home, verses 1 to 4. Trust Jesus because he is the way, verses 5 to 7. And trust Jesus because he shows us the Father, verses 9 to 14. Well, firstly, trust Jesus because he will take you home. Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there. I would, uh, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples that he's leaving them and they cannot follow him. This is distressing news for the disciples who have been with Jesus for several years. They've left behind families, they've left behind jobs to follow him. Jesus is the one they've pinned all their hopes on. And now he says he's leaving them. And their hearts are understandably troubled. And the solution to their troubled hearts, Jesus says, is to get a bigger picture of Jesus. You trust in God, trust also in me. Whatever faith you put in God, put that faith in me, for I am worthy of that faith. That's a big claim, isn't it? To equate himself with God. And with this big claim comes a big promise. Jesus is preparing a home for them. In the long term, Jesus is saying, it's better for the disciples if Jesus leaves 
because he's preparing his father's home. And the reference here to many rooms suggests that this promise is not only for the 11 disciples, but it's also a promise that extends to all of Jesus' followers. There is more than enough room, is what Jesus is saying. And the most straightforward understanding of these verses is that Jesus is talking about an eternal home with God, what the Bible calls heaven. And in the previous chapter, Jesus said that where he was going, they could not come because Jesus is about to head to the cross where he will die for them. Something that he alone had to do in order to open up the way for his followers. That is how Jesus is preparing this home for them. On the cross, Jesus deals with their sin through his death. On the cross, Jesus defeats death through his resurrection, and he grants his followers forgiveness and eternal life, such that they can live in God's holy presence for eternity, without the stain of sin, without the fear of death. This is lasting hope for troubled hearts. So let me ask you, in times of trouble, is heaven your home? When you feel weary because of sickness, when you feel the burden of broken relationships, when you feel gripped by the fear of death, when you are stressed with worry about the uncertainty about your future, when grief threatens to swallow you, do you cling to this promise of Jesus that having died on the cross for you, do you trust that he has prepared a home for you? In heaven with God. The Apostle Paul reminds us to look not to our earthly home, but to our eternal heavenly home in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Every day I look in the mirror, I lose heart. Because I am wasting away outwardly. I've started to get grey nose hairs. Uh, This year I started to get tinnitus. And for those of you who have tinnitus, that ringing in your ears is the worst when it's quiet, isn't it? I I lose heart when I, I look at how broken things are in this life. And then Paul reminds me. Paul reminds me as terrible and distressing as these troubles seem, from the gaze of eternity with God, my troubles are light and momentary. They don't feel like that, do they? They don't feel like that. The sickness of a child, the anger of a spouse, the chronic pain of your body breaking down, but from the perspective of heaven, that glorious reality far outweighs all the troubles of this life. So let me ask you again, in times of trouble, is heaven your home. 
Well, secondly, trust Jesus because he is the way. Uh, There's still confusion amongst the disciples in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Jesus has told the disciples that heaven is their home. He's preparing his father's home for them. He's also told them that they know the way to heaven. So how can Thomas say that they don't know the way? Because they don't realize that in knowing Jesus, they know the way. Because he's the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. Jesus makes this massive claim in these well-known verses. Now, note Jesus doesn't say, I will show you the way. I will lead the way. Jesus says, I am the way. It's even more significant, isn't it? Jesus is the way because he reveals the truth of God. Jesus shows us who God is. No other person before or after Jesus can reveal God the way he does. All the way back in John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Word, reveals the truth of God, and Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is the way because he is the life of God. In Jesus, we see the source of life for everything in creation. Again, John chapter 1, verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus, we will also see after his death, at his resurrection, that Jesus has power of life over death even. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then Jesus can make the exclusive claim, no one comes to the Father except through me. When I was involved in international student ministry, a ministry called Focus, I got to know a man who was a devoted member of the Sikh religion. And after he had attended our Bible studies for some time at uni, he emailed me this image and asked me to comment. Uh, I said to him, I think the picture is saying that the candle in the middle represents God. And I think the six symbols around the candle represent six major religions in the world. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Sikhism. And the picture is saying that behind every religion is the same God, that effectively all the religions are the same because they point us to the one God. Now, that's a popular belief today. You don't need to be a Sikh to, to think that, to believe that. I wrote this to the young man in part of the email. I said to him that I didn't agree with the picture. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And I quoted John chapter 14, verse 6 in the email. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what he wrote to me. I'm not satisfied with your answer. Come out from under your roof and try to understand others. Jesus was only, only, only the Son of God. He was not God. 
You people are following the path of only a simple man, but not God. God sent his son Jesus to show you people the right way, and you should follow the path of God, not Jesus. But I notice Christians do not follow the path of God. They still follow after Jesus. Then where is his father God? Jesus is not the only way to reach God. For example, if you want to go to the city from Latrobe, uni, you can either go by the freeway on the 250 bus or by another different way, say the 86 tram. There are different ways to reach God depending on which religion you follow, okay? Sorry to say, but your knowledge is very small about religion. Here's the thing. You see, I, I think at some level he understood what Jesus was saying in that verse. Either Jesus is incredibly arrogant or he's God. Either Jesus is an arrogant liar or he's God the Son and therefore the only way to God the Father. So many people see these words of Jesus as being arrogant. But remember, that's not the intention of Jesus in this chapter. Jesus is actually comforting his disciples. He's saying, don't be troubled. I will get you to your heavenly home because I am the way. Trust me because there is no other way. Instead of being arrogant, I think these words are incredibly gracious. You see, let me, let me explain that. You see, coming to God is not as impersonal as catching a bus to the city or making sense of a candle or climbing a mountain or whatever impersonal analogy people use. You see, knowing God is personal. Knowing God is about relationship. So let me use an analogy that speaks of relationship. Let's talk about weddings. Let's talk about Indian weddings. One thing about Indian weddings is they're big. Okay, in Australia, uh, I had 180 guests at my wedding, and that's a big wedding in Australia at a reception. That is nothing compared to Indian weddings. The guests number in the thousands. I was speaking to a, a friend of mine who played a big role in organizing his sister's wedding, and they had 6,000 families attend. They catered for 15,000 people. And here's the thing. You see, in Australia, we, we post out our wedding invitations, and sometimes I've, I've even received wedding invitations by email. In India, wedding invitations are hand-delivered. So on behalf of his father, the host of this wedding, my friend hand-delivered 6,000 wedding invitations directly to his guests. It took three months full-time, and he travelled thousands of kilometres to do this. The Bible in several places speaks of heaven like a wedding banquet. So I want you to imagine God the Father hosting this banquet. He wants his guests to enjoy his fellowship and celebrate with him. And at great cost, the Son of the Father goes to huge lengths to issue you an invitation to the wedding banquet. But you cannot turn up without responding to the invitation. Any culture understands that, doesn't it? Such is God's grace that he invites all who turn to him, 
Rather than being arrogant, it is God's grace, isn't it, to provide a way. It is God's grace to invite anyone, let alone inviting those who have sinned against him. But you must accept the invitation. So let me ask you, is Jesus your way to heaven? I don't know if you go to a funeral, and often at funerals, people assume that the person who has died is in heaven. I wonder if you assume that about your own life. And I want to ask you that if you die, what is the basis of that confidence that you will be in a better place? You see, if Jesus is right, if he is the only way to his Father God, if he is the only way to a heavenly home, and if there is no room in your life for Jesus, then what is your confidence based on? Jesus presents you an invitation today to trust him, and you cannot come any other way than to take his invitation. So trust him. Trust him. This brings us to our third and final point. Trust Jesus because he shows us the Father. The disciples are slow to catch what Jesus is saying or they're not convinced. So Philip asks the question they are probably all wanting to ask him. Verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Philip would have known his Old Testament. He knew of the experiences of prophets like Isaiah and Moses. Both prophets glimpsed just a tiny glimpse of the glorious presence of God. And maybe this is what Philip has in mind. Have you ever requested something like this of God? God, just do something impressive. Show me clearly, definitively who you are. Then I'll believe you. But Philip hasn't clicked after all these years. The answer has been right under his nose. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Well, what does Jesus mean by saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is saying that the intimate union between God the Father and God the Son is so close that when you hear the word of Jesus the Son, you hear the word of God the Father. It's When you see the works of God the Son, you see the works of God the Father. Now, it's not to say that Jesus and God are exactly identical. And it's not just that the Father and Son are with each other. It's even stronger than that. The Father and the Son are in each other. It's right, as Jesus says back in John chapter 10, the Father and the Son are one. Not, identi not identical, but they are one. So Jesus the Son represents God the Father so completely that it is right for Jesus to say, trust in me. If you've seen me, you've seen God my Father. But how do we know this? What does Jesus say to Philip? Look at the evidence. You've heard my words. You've seen my works. 
Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Remember, as we've been going through John's Gospel, remember the signs. Jesus turned water into wine at Galilee. Jesus fed thousands with two fish and five loaves. Jesus healed a man born blind. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus is now saying to Philip, all these signs are pointing to one truth. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Prove yourself to me, you might have said to God. Show me who you are. I mean, the disciples at least could touch and and talk to Jesus. They could eat with him. I want some sort of experience of God like that. So God, show me. And I wish you would show yourself so clearly to my friends and family too. But maybe all along the evidence has been right under our nose, right here in the Bible. Because in the Bible we have the words of Jesus. In the Bible we see the works of Jesus. And the experience of every Christian is that these words are not just ink on a page. These are the words of God through his Son spoken to us. You know, I'm not surprised when I hear Christians talking about you know, going to church or going to a conference or a camp, watching YouTube, listening to a Christian speaker, opening up the Bible, and then they say it's as though that person was speaking directly to me. Because that's exactly what's going on. The words of Jesus are spoken, are addressed to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who has seen me has seen my Father. These are the words Jesus is speaking to you. Inviting you to know God through trusting him. What will you do with this invitation? As Philip could know God by trusting Jesus, so can you. But Jesus doesn't stop there because he says that those who know him can also make him known to others. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Uh, It's hard to imagine doing greater works than Jesus, isn't it? It's hard to imagine raising the dead. And, And I don't believe that Jesus here is specifically talking about supernatural works. But I think he's talking about the work of drawing people to God for eternity. Back in John chapter 4, this is what Jesus said about the work of God, the will of God. John 4 verse 34. My food, says Jesus is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. The will of the Father and the Son 
is to see people saved for eternity. The work of the Father and the Son is to do this work of drawing people to the heavenly home through people trusting in Jesus. And the work for all those who believe in the Son is also this work. And the prayers for those who believe in the Son is to pray for this to happen. How is it possible for followers of Jesus to do greater works? Remember that Jesus and his disciples are standing before the cross. But on the other side of the cross, Jesus' work will be complete. The disciples will have witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus just as he told them. And they will receive the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to them. And they will be empowered in a way unheard of before the cross. And because of that power, they will proclaim a message of Christ that is clear, that is complete and comes with conviction. And the work of God then is not restricted just to the presence of Jesus on earth. But these works will be done by all of Jesus' followers everywhere through the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look more at the Holy Spirit in the weeks to come. But these are the greater works of Jesus. And not only will followers of Jesus do greater works, but they are invited to pray about these works. You see, sometimes you read these prayers and you think it's like a blank check. But it's not. These works, these prayers are to do the works of Jesus. And the fruit of these works come only from the prayers of God's people. You know, this, this prayer is not a blank check. It's not a wish to a genie. It's not a magic spell. Because prayers like that are really to do with self, aren't they? The prayers offered in the name of Jesus are prayers in line with the will of Jesus. Prayers that seek the glory of the Father and the Son. These are the prayers that God answers yes to. So let me ask you, will you do these works and will you pray for these works? If you've seen the Father by seeing Jesus and believing in him, then the logical step is to make him known. Do the work of Jesus. Pray then for God's glory by praying that people will come to know Jesus. Now that makes sense, isn't it? Remember where we started this morning. If we remember our grief, if we're struck by the trouble in our hearts, we trust in Jesus. And when we find comfort in Jesus for our troubled hearts, then what brings God glory is to point others with their troubled hearts to trust Jesus so that they too may know where their home is. Will you do that for those you meet this week? Will you pray that for those you meet this week? This morning I told you about a man I visited who died. His wife and his kids were in that room with me too before he died. And I spoke to this family of hope when I opened John 14. I turned and read from Romans 5 about how suffering leads to a hope 
that will never put us to shame. I turned to 1 Peter 1 and I spoke about a living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I brought my guitar and, and I sang with them, It is well with my soul. An amazing grace. It was sweet fellowship. I prayed with them that they might know comfort and hope in Christ. As I left, I thought about his kids facing life without their earthly father. But I prayed that they would know their heavenly father. In their troubled hearts, I pointed them to the one in whom we trust. Friends, as I look at this passage, these are the works that we do, aren't we? These are the greater works. These are the things we pray for. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust Jesus because he will take you home. Trust Jesus because he is the way. Trust Jesus because he shows us the Father. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father God, you know our troubled hearts. You know the pain. You know the fear. You know the grief and the loneliness. Gracious Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he prepares a home for us in heaven with you, that he comforts us now, when we trust him. Father, thank you that he is the way and there is no other way. Please, gracious Father, help us to turn to him, to rely on him, to cling to him. And Father, thank you that you have shown yourself so completely in your son that we can point others to Jesus. Help us, Father. Help us to do that. Help us to pray that they might know you as we have come to know you. And we pray all this for the glory of your Son and for you. In his name we pray. Amen.